I think it depends on what the source of the no is and what the shape of it is, because the no's can come in all sorts of packages. Um, when it comes to like me trying to suggest an idea that I really believe to, in to someone and they say no, to me, it feels like it's just like, I just haven't gotten them to understand what I'm actually talking about yet. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. If you have not already listened to part one of this conversation, I suggest you pause and go back to hear that first. But if you're just impatient and want to stay right here for part two, I'll set the scene for you. There are so many things that I can say about today's guest, Rishi Hirway, and I'm going to whip through some of them in a second. But the big thing that's front and center right now is that his new Netflix miniseries, Song Exploder, based on his wildly popular podcast of the same name, was just released on Netflix Friday, October 2nd. On it, he talks to musicians like Alicia Keys, R.E.M., Hamilton creator and star Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Ty Dolla Sign. To say that it is huge is an understatement. I met Rishi when I was a guest on his other giant podcast that he co-created and co-hosted with my former castmate from the West Wing and Scandal, Josh Molina. That podcast is the West Wing Weekly, yet another zeitgeist podcast. Originally, though, Rishi moved to L.A. to record music and score films. So as wildly successful as he is now, for a long time, he still identified himself as a struggling or failed musician. His humility, combined with laser focus and attention to detail, is perhaps what inspired me the most. There's more I could say, but we really got into it, so much so that we are releasing our conversation with Rishi in two parts. Before I get there, I want to remind you that my book, 10,000 Knows How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes, can be pre-ordered at the link in our show notes. It comes out October 27th through Wiley Publishing. And if you dig this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen and share it with people you think it may help. Today's conversation really gets into the long-term commitment that is required for an artist to not only make a living, but eventually thrive. Lots of struggle, lots of overcoming. For today, I give you part two of musician, entrepreneur, podcaster, sound expert, artist, Rishi Hirway. That year I started a new band. It was like the first time I started a new musical project, um, uh, which when I was actually, when I was at South by Southwest with with that film, with R. Nixon, the, the film that I had scored, I saw a movie called Short Term 12. And, uh, and one of the guys in that movie, one of the actors in it was Lakeith Stanfield and he rapped in the movie. And I just was so blown away by him and so blown away by this, like one scene where he raps. And I saw it at like a screening where there was like a Q and A and I, and afterward, and I asked him a question about that scene. And then afterwards I wrote, I like went up to him and I was just like, Hey, do you make music? Is this like a thing that is like, you are a great rapper. Like, is that something that you do? Or are you just an actor to just bust that out for that one, one scene of the movie? And we talked for a little bit and he said, you know, that he had posted some stuff to YouTube, but you know, not really. And so I was like, do you want to do stuff together? I was like, I think we could make stuff together. I think we could, I was like, I, uh, you know, and I gave him a 1am radio CD and, um, and he seemed pretty skeptical, but he gave me his email address and we ended up connecting and we, we ended up starting a band. Huh? Um, and so that That's was like 2013, 2013. Yeah. 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 And we put out an EP Our, that band is called Moors and, uh, and it was great. I like, I'd been wanting, I'd wanted to do hip hop producing forever, forever. I mean like the, like the stuff that I would play drums along, you know, drums to in high school when I would be locked in that like little practice closet was like the roots. I wanted to be like Questlove, you know, a, a live drummer who, who made hip hop. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, whatever, 20 years later, I was finally getting to do it. Um, and then, 
and then that, uh, and then also that spring, that was, that was in March when we met. And that same month was also the month that I first taped the, what ended up being the first episode of song exploder, um, with my friend, Jimmy from the postal service. Uh, I, cause I was thinking about this idea of having a kind of like show and tell interview for artists to, to let people hear all of the different isolated parts of a song that you normally never get to hear unless you're the person who made the song. And that potentially could be a project that I could do. And my, in my head, I wasn't thinking the word podcast. I was thinking like brand, I don't know. I was thinking of it as something that I could make for some brand that they would pay me for. And I could do it, you know, as a semi-regular thing on that would be my side gig instead of trying to like constantly hustle for a graphic design freelance gig or something like that. Yeah. I was like, here's something I could, I could do and I could make and, and, and they could give it to me and I'll just be like, I'll curate it and I'll put this thing out and they can do, you know, they can. Had had you even been listening to podcasts at that point? Did you know they existed? Did you? Yeah, I listened to just a few um, at that point. I mean, there weren't so many, but, you know, in, in 2012, I, I started listening to a couple. I guess, the, you know, like the first one I ever listened to was the Ricky Gervais podcast when I first moved to L.A. and like, or like when I when I first moved to Los Feliz in 2006. And I remember like setting up my, the, the apartment that I lived in that uh, I listened to the Ricky Gervais podcast. And then I didn't really listen to one. I oh, actually, you know, when I was on tour in 2007, a girl I had been seeing burned a bunch of CDs for me of episodes of This American Life so I could listen to them in the car. I mean, it was, just, it was like basically like a proto version of like podcast listening, like on demand, yeah. <laughs> This American Life episodes. Um, but then like the actual like first podcasts per se that I was listening to were um, WTF. Mark Marin's That was the podcast. first one I ever listened to. Yeah. Him, it, I, I was doing voiceovers and the guy that ran the sound house said, do you know what a podcast is? And I said, no. And he said, listen to this. Hmm. And he explained, I said, what is it? And it was, it was Mark Marin interviewing Paul Thomas Anderson. And it was this two hour in-depth conversation that I felt like a fly on the wall. And I was like, this is amazing. This yeah. is, and, and that was kind of, I don't think I, was then thinking I'll have one, but I thought this sounds like a bunch of conversations I've had in my life. And I really like this. Yeah. And that's what led eventually led to this. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the first, the first two episodes that I remember listening to were, I can't remember which one was first. Um, it was either, I think it might've been Louis CK episodes. Um, like, like a two parter where they kind of buried the hatchet. Um, I haven't heard that one. I've heard about it, but I haven't listened to it. I yeah. heard I'm supposed to. Yeah. It was a pretty epic, epic thing yeah. uh, to hear happen. And then the, the other one, the one that really, really stayed with me was the one with Judd Apatow um, from around that same time um, where he interviewed Judd Apatow and they went all the way back to Judd Apatow's years as a high school student when he had a radio show where he would interview comedians. Yeah. Um, but the reason why he was interviewing comedians was just to get secrets on how to be a comedian. Like somehow he'd managed to talk his way into interviewing yeah, Gary him. Shandling. And that, yes. I mean, I love that special, the documentary he did on yeah. the, inside the mind of, of Gary Shandling. I think it was, or inside the diary or the journal. I don't know what it was, but yeah. 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 And he's, uh, and they had audio. It was amazing. They had audio clips. So they'd talk a little bit about it and then they would play these clips from Judd Apatow you know, as a 16 year old yeah. interviewing Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld and Gary Shandling. Incredible. And it was amazing. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, you know, at that time, especially in my, like, I really only liked listening to comedians. <laughs> um, I only liked listening to comedian interviews. I hated listening to musician interviews. Um, it was great on tour to listen to, to co- comedians talking about stuff because they're so similar. The lifestyle of like a working musician and the lifestyle of a working comedian are, are really similar, you know, and the things that comics end up talking about, like staying in crappy hotel rooms and going to some random city and, you know, meeting people and like the grind of like working on your set. 
all this was stuff that I could relate to, but I didn't have to feel any, in any kind of way, weirdly, like some kind of comparison, Mm -hmm. you know, of like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Should I be jealous? Should I be, should I be, uh, um, I don't know. Should I be, do I need to like learn some kind of direct lesson? You know, it it was a little bit, you could just, you could, you could almost turn off and still learn lessons, but be entertained. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, frankly, it was much more entertaining because comedians are actually funny. Yeah. And, you know, instead of having to listen to like the sometimes self-important kind of stylings in like music documentaries that would, that happen all the time, you know, it's just like, these are people who their job is to be entertaining. So it's going to be more entertaining. Yeah. Their yeah. job is to talk. Um, so I loved WTF for that because I felt like I was getting that kind of, um, I was getting that kind of uh, inside baseball conversation at like this high level in a way that was more entertaining and informative than I would have gotten. You know, and something like that didn't really exist for musicians. Yeah. He had a way well, of being so granular with his questions and, and his, and I found, you know, it was interesting. like, I've, I found his questioning style, both like, like really compelling, but also a little off putting at times. And, and, but I still wanted to listen. It was really, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. That's what I was, the, the, the one with Paul Thomas Anderson, I was like, God, they really get into the nitty gritty the way I'll talk with my actor friends about acting. Mm. Like they really get into it. Yeah. And, and you know, that just happens to be my sensibility. And sometimes with my own, like, you know, looking at the clock right now, I'm like, I could, I I could just have this conversation and some people want to hear that. And some people want to get in and get out. And I I don't know the answer. I just, I kind of, I I, I like to get in there and that's what I liked that he would do. I noticed if if you think about Mark Maron, he's in there, he talks a lot with them, which is cool. And Song Exploder, you kind of like open it and then it's like, it's almost like Oprah's masterclass that she did short-lived for a while where the, it feels like a monologue from them. So, so do you guys have, well, how does it work? Like, how, and, and, and was it always that way? I, I don't know. Like yeah. where that, that was, you have the full conversation like this and then yeah. you'd edit the crap out of it and just give the highlights. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, it's a long form interview. Um, I, you know, because I both appreciated the getting into the nitty gritty the way that Mark Marin did, but I also, the other podcast, the, the second podcast that I listened to was the memory palace. Do you know that show? Mm-mm. It's a beautiful, beautiful show. It's almost like, like little poetic essays about forgotten moments from history. And it's a monologue written. It's, it's, it's created and written and narrated by Nate DeMeo and uh, it's just so beautiful. Most of the episodes are like under 10 minutes long. And, um, and I loved it so much and it had nothing to do with the length or rather like the brevity of it was part of what I loved about it. You know, it just felt like, it just felt like a gut punch of emotion sometimes. And, um, and so in my mind, there was some way of synthesizing these two things that I thought, um, could be the answer for how to do a show, an interview show with musicians talking about their process where I I could have the long form conversation in order to get to the nitty gritty, but then cut out all the parts where they're not being entertaining or not being interesting or, you know, whatever meandering. How long did that take you though? Cause I've had that, you know, for, for this show, I've had that thought and I go like, what is that? entail. Now you're, you're coming from an editing. And now I know you have assistant editors, but I would imagine in the beginning you're doing everything. You're editing it yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's gotta be an immense amount of time or did you not find it to be? You know, it was, it took me about three weeks to make the pilot from the, from the initial interview. Um, I interviewed, I interviewed my friend Jimmy and in my mind, I was not thinking about radio or podcasting or audio at all as like the model for how to do it. I was thinking about documentary film and how it's like, yeah, just a talking head. And that that's sort of like, that's like the legit way. Cause I was, I was also like, nobody wants to hear my questions. Nobody wants to hear from me at all. Like this would be better if I weren't in it. In fact, in the, you know, like you said, I, I'm, I do the intro and, and the outro for the episodes, but in the very first version of the pilot of the show, 
I was not in it at all. Like the plan was actually to have, you know, in the pilot, Jimmy introduces it. The show is called Deconstructed. And he was like, my name's Jimmy Tamburello. You're listening to Deconstructed. And today I'm going to talk about my song, you know, my, the Postal Service song, The District Sleeps Alone Tonight. And that was going to be my plan if this went forward was that every artist, I would, you know, I'd do my interview and at the end I'd be like, hey, okay, can you read these four sentences? My name is this and this, you know, and that, that would be how I would frame it. And I just wouldn't be in it. Um, that felt like more professional, I think to me and more like legit legitimacy was something that I really was like very concerned with at first because I was like, I'm a nobody and, and why would anybody want to listen to this? I have to make it feel as like sort of bulletproof in terms of its legitimacy as possible. Um, so so the editing was really about that. Like, how do I remove myself from it and make it feel like a documentary film, which felt more legitimate and condense it to just sort of the most interesting parts and have that element of like show and tell where it feels like you're reading, you're reading an artist's own liner notes to, to the song, but like in great detail with a back and forth where you get to hear things that you've never heard before. Those were all the things that I was trying to like put together in, in one thing. And that that's how all of that was sort of happening simultaneously. And so the first version of the pilot is not like so different from what the show continues to be now. I'm so tempted to do that with this show. I'm really, I, I'm, I, there's always been, but I'm not an editor. So that's where I have the, I can do basic things, but with you having that skill, that's an asset that, um, because you get, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get to have the conversation your listeners get the cherry picked version mm -hmm. of it. Um, do you offer those full conversations in the raw to people? I don't. Um, yeah. I feel, I really feel like the final edited versions are the best version of the, yeah. of the conversation or best version of the thing. You know, I came to it. I had never edited anything narrative before or like d done any kind of storytelling before. So I was thinking of it more, I was drawing more from like my design background and from my design and, and from my back mus musical background as a remixer, mm. you know, I was using, I'm using pro tools, which is what I use to make music. And when I'm working with other people's music, what, what I use when I'm doing remixes and with the remix, you know, you're like, you take a little piece of their music and then you take another piece of their music and maybe you add something of your own and then you kind of like blend it together and you like reconsider how you want to tell the story of their song. And it felt like a similar kind of thing, only instead of it being all the elements were, were musical, some of the elements were interview audio. And mm -hmm. then some of it were, uh, some of those pieces were music. And how do I tie that? So it felt more like, it felt more connected to those things than, this was my first, it was my first um, attempt at editing per se. Yeah. Um, but I do think, but like I, I work really hard to try and make sure that those things feel like they're the complete picture and that they're linear, like like linear in a way that like a non-musician will still be able to appreciate. And, and also somebody who doesn't know this person, someone who doesn't know anything about the song, doesn't know about the song making process can come in and feel like there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, you know, and it mm -hmm. all kind of makes sense. And um, that was always the stuff that was kind of guiding me. And so take that away and just give the raw audio. And I feel like it would just be, it just, that's just not what the show is. It would just be 10,000 no's. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here, here's a question for you business wise, because you've done this with West Wing weekly as well. You, you know, you have some huge artists on song exploder and you have some huge actors, writers, producers, et cetera, on West Wing weekly. You also have, uh, huge songs, which is, uh, you know, IP, uh, you have West Wing Weekly, you have episodes of how do you, like, did you know ahead of time, how'd you get around that with like the music? Like wh what was the setup? Because I, uh, you know, licensing music and all of that, once you have the artist's um, blessing, is it okay? But I would imagine it's owned by the the studio and the record label. How does that work? How yeah. You so you already, you already have a better understanding of it than what I did when I first started the show, because I thought, uh, that, you know, the artist, I would explain that this is what the setup of the show is. We're going to do an interview, but before you, we, you come to do the interview, you have to send me the, 
the, the isolated tracks from the recording. You have to give me all of the things so I can use them to sort of, I, I use them in the interview, you know, I'll be, I'll play parts of the song yeah. that are isolated and they, and ask them about it. And then later I edit it together with those, with those individual tracks. And so. Which is really cool the way you do it and build it and just hearing like a guitar riff and then just hearing something else added in and then he hearing the story behind it. And then, he yeah, anyway, yeah. Go on. That, that was the idea. And so it was a prerequisite. So I never did an episode without that. Um, and I guess I just assumed that that meant things were kosher. And, um, and yeah, it was only when things, when the artists got much, much bigger, um, that, and maybe the representatives were not so kosher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like I would sometimes be dealing with pub, with publicists and managers and even like record labels, but it was really, uh, it was really, um, it was later, you know, that was in, in 2014, that wasn't really an issue, but then, but then, um, in 2000, late 2015, and then especially in 2016, you know, then things with podcasts had changed at that point. People were paying attention to them, including, including record labels and publishers. And, the, and then, and, you know, um, and then one, did you have to restructure the whole thing business wise yeah. entities and all of that? Yes. Yeah. Then, yeah. Pub, pub, uh, you know, a publisher came I started said, similar hey, to you. I had no idea. I just like, I just want to talk to people. Yeah. That's how this whole thing started. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like being educated on it now, yeah. you know, really. So you did, so you did that, you grew with it. You were able to pivot. And when you needed to get lawyers, you got lawyers and yeah, went off without hiccups and all that. And uh, I wouldn't say it went off without hiccups. <laughs> I remember it never I remember. goes off without hiccups. <laughs> I remember there was a, a conversation I had where I was like, oh, you know, it's all done with the artist's explicit permission. They're the ones giving the track. And I remember, you know, whoever it was I was talking to on the phone being like, well, they don't own, own that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like we own it. <laughs> Again, that makes me feel so much better about my naivete because that's how <laughs> I was like, well, the people are just telling their story. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, it gets yeah. more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I, ha I had a feeling of, can't we all just be cool? Like, isn't this just cool? Like, isn't this just good for everybody? You can be until it starts making money, basically. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and they realize that they're. Or yeah. even if it till, until it just seems like it might be making money because that was. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I think one of the things that's deceptive about Song Exploders, I think it, I'm in some ways, I'm, like, I'm a little bit proud of this in a perverted way. I think it seems bigger from the outside than what it actually is. Um, uh, because, because I've gotten to have some like really big guests on the show. It looks like it might be a more, again, it has like a, a outside, it has like a coating of legitimacy um, I, yeah. while still being like a thing that I make in my garage. Um, I have this exact, again, I identify with you. I had the same thing where people go email and I, and I'm not, putting 10,000 no's on the level of Song Exploder, because I feel like Song Exploder is one of those really huge ones, as is the West Wing Weekly. But the same thing where the perception is that there's, um, it's just different than what the real humble beginnings are, you know? Yeah. And so when I saw that, I, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, when I saw the article in Dwell Magazine. I was like, oh, that's so cool. He's doing it out of out of his garage because I'm, you know, in the back of my garage, basically. And, and you know, it's kind of like off the garage. And I was like, oh, it's it's so similar. And that's one of the things I love about it is that you, it's more about the ideas and it can be lean and yet it can have massive reach. Yeah. Um, so in terms of getting huge guests, was that, only after, like, did you have, and what was the biggest guest you had early on before you felt like you kind of became a thing? And how did that come about? I think that, you know, I think there was a big moment for the show when you 2 was on. Um, okay. That was in June of 20, 2015. So the second year of the podcast. That's huge. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember when <laughs> were it, you kind of like, wow, is this happening? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I remember after I recorded the interview, so it took six months to, to happen. Yeah. Um, but, and so, and I didn't tell anybody about it until, until actually, you know, I had the interview in my hands. Um, I had the tape, but once, once I did, I remember telling my dad, I was like, I was like, dad, uh, guess who's going to be on the podcast? And he's like, who? I was like, who would you think of if I, if I said, who's the biggest band in the world? And my dad was like, I don't know. My dad doesn't know anything about music. You know, he was like, yeah. I don't know. You too? And I was like, yes, you too is going to be on the podcast. Amazing. And like, that, that was, was that in it, person well, or was that, that was virtual? It was virtual. Yeah. yeah. They, they were on tour. And so they were, they were in, they were in Canada or they were in Canada when I did Bono's interview. The, the edge was, uh, no, they, they, they both were, um, uh, they were on tour. And, and so I, I interviewed them separately on the same day in two different interviews, but it was, it was so cool. I mean, Bono said that he had listened to the podcast. He was like, Oh, I was listening to the episode with you did with the national the other day. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. yeah was, isn't that amazing? It That's was really amazing exciting. that you created that. <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, it's just, uh, it's it, that's such a huge talk about external validation. And, you know, we were talking about it before, like pushing this boulder up the hill uh, to, to, to have, you know, arguably, you know, maybe there's, you know, the stones, there's, there, there are a couple of, uh, yeah, it's like, but you, you have you two. Uh, did you ever have the stone, the Rolling Stones? Mm-mm. But, you know, I, uh, Heard the one, you know, the Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. I mean, a huge, just huge, huge artist. It's it's amazing. So, how far into the run of Song Exploder were you when you got the idea for the West Wing Weekly, and how did that come about with Josh? And I think that's another brilliant idea that you to, to base it off a property that's so loved that a lot of people wished still existed um had was that something that was kind of brewing for a while that show took a little bit to you know to go from the first idea and the first email i sent josh to actually coming to life but it had a long road to get there even you know before that idea existed in because in 2012 so i'd written to josh you know in 2001 or whatever and then um by the time I moved to LA, his email address had changed. So I could not get in touch with him to be like, Hey, I'm in LA. Remember me, the kid from the email, yeah. you know, do you want to hang out or <laughs> whatever? <laughs> uh, so I never, and I didn't know how to get in touch with him. Um, and you know, I didn't know anything about agents or publicists or any, whatever. I didn't know anything about that. All I knew is the email address I had no longer worked. Um, and I kind of, you know, and it just kind of like went away after a while. And then in 2012, after I, after that first film that I scored went to Sundance, it went to Sundance that January, I was looking at social media, you know, like kind of, I was still pretty new. I had been on Twitter for a while with like my band, but I wasn't really using it that much. But I think because of being at the festival and stuff, I was looking at it more, whatever. And I remember... I remember the actor um, Pat Healy uh, had been had been in some movie. Um, hold on, let me see if I can imagine. Um, Pat Pat Healy. Uh, I think he had been in he had been in a movie called Compliance that also played at Sundance that year. And I was just like following people, you know, looking at people who had been at Sundance. Pat Healy retweeted something from Josh Molina, and I was like. Josh Molina. Oh my gosh. Like I'd forgotten about the idea of like social media being a way to kind of like to get to someone. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely didn't think of it as like a way to kind of like connect with celebrities or something, but they retweeted him and I, but, he, but Patrick Healy retweeted him and I saw him and I, and then I looked and in his bio for it, like his website, he had a link to his Facebook page. And so I clicked on that and right there it said like message. And so I, I wrote to him and I was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, I wrote to you 11 years ago about the idea of like whether I should move to LA to be a film composer. Uh, well, I, I did. And, you know, now 11 years later, I just had, I just scored my first feature. It just went, I played at Sundance. If there's ever a chance for me to take you to lunch and say thank you for the advice, I would love to. 
And I remember Josh wrote back saying, uh, as an unemployed actor, I make it a rule never to say no to a free lunch. <laughs> it's a perfect Molina quote. <laughs> um, and so we went to lunch. We went to uh, Veggie Grill in Santa Monica. And, um, and we, we talked and I, uh, and we talked about a bunch of stuff and I told him about this charity that I was involved with, this charity Pablov that was, um, um, whose mission was to, to end childhood cancer. And, um, and he's like, oh, if you ever, he's like, if there's ever anything that I can do to get involved, let me know. And, uh, and then I had had this idea to do a fundraiser for, for, the Pablo Foundation. Was like, I think part of the, part of some some brick in the foundation for me is like some level of like competitiveness as a motivation. And I had been involved in this charity from like the beginning, and uh, like I helped set up the web page. You know, it was it was something you know, but it was not mine. I was not, I was not the, the founders of it. And, um, but they had like a board of directors. And I think in some part of my heart, I was like, well, they didn't ask me to be on the board of directors, you know, but like the board of directors are like, you know, like any board, they're like very powerful, yeah, uh, very successful people. And I certainly wasn't at that level, but one of the things they had for the, one of the requirements I remember, um, one of the founders of the charity told me that like all of the board of directors members were required to be individually responsible for raising or like generating $10,000 for the, for the charity. And some of them could just write a check for $10,000 and be like, boom, that, and that's it. Some right. of them would do other stuff. And there was some competitive element in my brain that was like, I can do that. You know, like, like, I, like I didn't ever actually express that I wanted to be on the board of directors, but I think I wanted to just sort of Prove that you could. I could prove be your that worth. they could. They yeah, could. Yeah. They could ask me if they wanted to be. You know, if they wanted to ask. And so I was like, I'm going to raise ten thousand dollars. And so I had this idea for one of the things that I used to do with the the folks who had founded that charity was I would play celebrity with them. Do you ever play that game? No. It's like two teams. You put a bunch of famous names in a bowl. Everybody contributes some names, and then two teams face off, and you pull one name out, and you know, and you, you get it, and you're like, okay, this guy was the uh, racist dad in Get Out. Got it. Bradley Whitford. Exactly. Go. And then you like, your team gets the point for that. And, you know, that's the idea. And so I was like, you know what would be fun? Celebrity, celebrity. And that was going to be my, that was my idea for for a charity event. And I mentioned it to Josh to see if he would want to play. And he, and he said, yes. And, I, and the other thing that I, you know, as a, as a Molina fan, Molina Stan, uh, even I knew that he had been from like, 2005, I remember like when I binge watched a lot of West Wing on Bravo when it was in syndication, I just had Bravo on. I was working on a movie that summer. I was working in LA. I was like working on the Dukes of Hazard movie of all things um, as an assistant to the composer. And I sublet this place and I would just be on call. And I had a lot of days of just doing nothing, waiting for the composer to come to be like, come up to Topanga Canyon and, uh, fix my pro tool sessions, for, you know, I'm done for the night. And it would be like midnight. I'd work from like midnight to three. Yeah. And the rest of the time I would just be like hanging out in the sublet where they had cable. And so I'd watch Bravo and I would watch a lot of West Wing. And the other thing they had on there was Celebrity Poker Showdown, which was like a new show. And the first episode of that was like with the cast of the West Wing. And so I was like, this is so cool. And yeah. And I saw that Josh Molina was the creator and executive producer of that. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, I want to do the Celebrity Celebrity Tournament you did the celebrity poker showdown, which is also like this celebrity based game. Would, do you think, would you want to, would you be a captain of one of the teams? And he was like, yeah, he's like, I'll help you with it. And so Josh helped me organize some of the people, you know, who are going to be on the thing. And we did it at Largo and it was really fun. It ended up being so much fun that afterwards I said to Josh, I was like, I, I, I emailed him the next day and I was like, I kind of felt like this could be a TV show. And he said, I had the same thought. And I was like, would you be interested in partnering with me in trying to get it made as a TV show? And he said, yeah. Um, and so that started a long journey of trying to get it made into a TV show. And we partnered with a production company and we sold the pilot and or we sold we sold a pitch. We got greenlit for a pilot. We made a pilot. Um, 
with Michael Ian Black as the host of the show and Bradley Whitford and Richard Schiff and Stephen Weber and uh, uh, Scott Foley and Busy Phillips. And it was it was so much fun. Wow. We had a great, uh, great time making it. And then and so that was, by the way, that was in 2013, part of the I'm going to allow myself to pursue these other ideas. Right. Um, so we went on, on all these pitch meetings and stuff like that. We shot and we shot. Um, the pilot for Celebrity Celebrity, the TV show, the same month that the first episode of Song Exploder came out. January of 2014 was like a big month for me. It was like also, it was, it was also like uh, with Lakeith, we went to Sundance, we went back to Sundance, we performed, you know, like my new band. We were, yeah. it was a bunch of so stuff. So you really had a little, yeah, momentum. Yeah. yeah. But then nobody bought that. But then but the, what ended up happening was the channel that bought the pilot changed hands and the new owners said they were changing the format of the whole channel and they didn't want it. Yeah. And so we were in limbo. But you guys realized that you wanted to work together. Yeah. And then that's where this was, this idea was hatched. Yeah. After many, many more months of trying to get, find a new home for it and, and just being unsuccessful. And, and so at that point now in 2015, I had been doing song exploder for like over a year and a half and really having a good time with it and like feeling like it was again, like artistically successful, if not like crazy commercially successful, it felt like it was legitimate. At that point, had you already had you two on the show or not yes. yet? Yeah, had. I had. Okay. And, um, and so I said to Josh, I was like, I remember we got an email because like we had had a meeting scheduled at IFC for them to buy it. And the guy, the president of IFC who we were going to meet with got fired or something like that. And, and so, so suddenly we were back to the drawing board again, like for the fourth time or something. And I was just like, you know what? Let's do something else. Like I hate the world of TV. It, it is so hard, you know, like despite what my, my misgivings about this idea of like always having to hustle in the world of music and in the world of podcasting, I had felt like at least like you could make those roads. You could be like, right. I'm going to create my there own weren't, project. There weren't as there aren't as many gatekeepers. Yeah. TV has a ton of gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, here's something we could just do ourselves. And so then, and then that was when I pitched him the idea of West Wing Weekly, and he was like, well, I don't know. And that was around September of 2015. And so you know, the show didn't actually he didn't actually agree to do it until I think January the next year. Wow. Um, but I put, I, you know, I pushed him. He's somebody who needs convincing sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that, one thing that I w will say, like the hustle, the hustler part of me, the thing that I think I'm, I'm, I'm good at if it's like, could be crystallized. It's like, I think I'm pretty good at talking people into stuff. Yeah. Th that's the sales the sales side of it, you know, I feel a little like ashamed or something that that's, that that's a skill set Cause it feels like somehow antithetical to being like an artist or being a creative person. I, I understand what you're saying. And on the other hand, I think that that's a skill of vision. I think that, you know, that's what I was thinking before we sat down was getting into the podcast game in 2014. Um, West wing weekly I think maybe I'm wrong on this. My perception is that it spawned a whole bunch of imitators that <laughs> now do the touring, do the whole, you know, it, it merchandise and all of it. There's, I don't know how you can't call it's entrepreneurial skill, but it's also artistic skill. I believe the, the greatest entrepreneurs are great artists in that they have a vision of something where there was nothing. Look at your garage, look right behind you with all those guitars on the wall. Look at, you know, the spread that I saw in Dwell Magazine. Look at the fact that Bono is talking to you from Canada and you're in your garage. That's, you can call it sales, sure. Or you can call that artistic vision that others don't see until you wrap it up in a bow for them. I think, I mean, I, I, I look at you and I think that's art. I mean, that, that is its own form of art. It's, I, I get what you're saying, but I think that that's like the, the, 
I think your view of your own skills is almost like the the least generous view that one <laughs> could take of your skills. From where I'm sitting, I'm like, holy cow, this guy is just like producing and producing and producing. He hits it in this, he hits it in that. Like it, it, to me, it's it's kind of amazing. I mean, I know how hard it is to 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 make this show, and I look at what you've done with those two shows, and I'm like, holy cow, just to the to be able to convince Melina to do it and to be able to convince, you know, Martin Sheen to come on to convince, you know, to, I know it became its own thing. It started to, you know, it, it started to become its own, uh, entity on its own by the time we did that finale at the Ace Hotel, but that was an amazing night. <laughs> you know, you created that. That came out of your head. All those people standing up and cheering us on. All of those unbelievable actors on stage, you know, like Martin Sheen. I mean, the guy's a legend. It's, you know, Jimmy Smith, Bradley Whitford. The list went on and on. Aaron Sorkin. They all showed up, you know. I Really, I don't think I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but they, they showed up. You created that. That came out of your head, you know. That, to me, is like... An amazing feat. It's an amazing feat that I think is something you should be so proud of and not ashamed about. And I also think it sets you up relationship-wise, business-wise, track record-wise to be able to, if you choose, you know, you go play music. I mean, one, maybe financially, I don't know how they all panned out financially, but maybe you're like for a little while, you don't have to worry about that quite as much. You can go play the people that you've met. Maybe you can do something with that. I don't know. I just, I think it's amazing. And, and I just want to, you know, kind of applaud you and also point it out because it's almost mind-blowing to me that you don't see it that way or maybe you're just being you know extremely humble and kind of you know which I appreciate but I hope that on some level you realize that it's it's pretty freaking amazing that's um, really really nice of you to say yeah I, th- I yeah I think the thing that makes it hard uh is that all of it is a consequence of my, you know, looking in the mirror and being like, Hey, you know, things with music are not going as well as I want them to, to go, you know, like it all, it's all the result of, of taking this side path and, and, you know, and, and, and as far as you might go on that side path, you can still kind of see in the distance, the path that you had originally thought you were going to go on. Right. And it's hard not to look at it with some measure of regret or maybe even like a little bit of shame of just like, well, I, I didn't, I get it. I trust me, dude. I get it. (laughs) I get, but on the other hand, the tagline for this show is failure is opportunity and you are the living embodiment of that. And it's not, but I put that, that failure is like, is in quotes because it's not failure. It's if you think about that album that you put out, I think you said in 2013 or 14 or something, um, you felt good about it. it. It got plays on the radio, but even beside that, you felt good about it. It didn't move the needle. That that shit's out of your control. So I don't know. I don't. I don't look at it a failure for that reason. I look at in one particular perspective of it financially. Commercially, sure, you could say it probably wasn't abysmal, but it wasn't a huge success. Yeah. Fine. But from many other vantage points, it's a huge success. One, that you got it done. Two, that you like it. Three, that it's respected. Four, that it was the stepping stone to all these other successes. So I don't know. I mean, people can see me as looking at things with rose-tinted glasses. I get it. I could be annoying. I think I probably bug the shit out of my family because I'm always giving these kind of pep talks. <laughs> but I really do I really do see it in that way where I'm like, I, I get what you're saying. And I'm not saying that there's there's um, you know, there there is. There's a level of I mean, that's one of the tough things about being an artist is that you, it's like failure is just built into the game. It's, it's kind of, I mean, I think you kind of got to look at it like 
you know, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but you look at it like failure is built into that game. If you right. are a Hall of Famer, you fail six to seven times out of every 10 times you're at bat. Yeah. That's what you do. And you're still like the best of the best. <laughs> right. Right. So, so yeah, this is you're kind like, of you're like, similar. Oh, your ERA is 385. Incredible. It's like, that means you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like failing more than you're succeeding. It's, it's, it's basically like the, the not your ERA. Anybody uh, for any, your batting, you're, you're batting sorry, average. I was going to do that. Gonna but edit, then I, yeah. <laughs> Hi. I don't, I don't know about baseball. You, you will, you can do a little edit here. Save me some Maybe, or we can leave the warts in. Yeah. I like to leave the warts in. Oh my God. I'm at, the whole time average, we've been talking, the whole time we've been talking, I'm like, I'm like, am I going to edit this whole thing and say, we're, we're doing a very special episode of 10,000 notes, <laughs> yeah. or am I going to just show it? See, that that's, and that's the other side is like, part of me likes going down these wrong paths and go, because, because I feel like when people hear, when they hear this from you, that's what I'm most fascinated by that someone who's done what you've done. And I've, and it's not only you, it's so many people that I've talked to that I'm in awe of and they sit down with me. And when I hear it from their point of view, I'm like, Oh, that's so different than how I perceive you. And I think that's good for my listeners to hear because a lot of them are wanting to be where you're sitting and they have this idea of what that feels like. And I think that idea that they have is wrong. Yeah. I think it's more similar to how they feel right now. Mm-hmm. There's just a there's just a lot of stuff that you or accomplishments or whatever that you have that they don't. And there's also probably a level of confidence. And there's a, there is a level of like building. I do feel more. And I, I would hope you feel this way. You should feel it more than me, that there are certain things you're like, oh, okay, when a new challenge comes, I go, okay, I don't know how to do that, but I know I can learn how to do that. I can figure that out because I figured out this, 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 and this. So mm-hmm. I think there's some way that I could do this. Might take me a while, but if I keep chipping and looking at it from this way and turning it and twisting it, I'll, I can get there. It just might take me a while. Um I, I wanted to get, so I'm looking at the, I am looking at the time now and I'm going, I wanted to get into like, you have this home cooking podcast during quarantine that I, I think is really cool. I don't know that we're going to get into it. <laughs> I, I just wanted to bring it up to say like, you, you have, I mean, you have a, just give us like a little smidge of like what you're up to right now. And then I got three final questions and then I'm going to let you go. Okay. Um, yeah. Home cooking was, it was the most recent show that I've made after uh Western Weekly ended um that was uh that was the the next new thing um it's a it's a show with the chef Samin Nasrat who people might know from the Netflix show Salt Fat Acid Heat or her cookbook of the same name um and it's been really fun and I uh again just talked her into doing this project with me where she answers questions about you know what to do with the stuff that you've got in your house now that everybody found themselves having to rely on their own cooking a lot more is, you know, the quarantine made home cooks out of everyone. And, um, and with all the skills or lack thereof that people had going into it. So, um, and it's really fun. And, and she mostly just makes fun of me the whole time. And, and we've been having a really good time doing that. And it's, it's video as well as audio, just audio. Just audio. Oh, just audio. Interesting. And we've had, you know, guests on the show. Um, our first episode, we had Josh Molina on uh, to have a little continuity. He told, talked to us about these latkes that he made. And uh, um, the last episode, we had Yo-Yo Ma on. So a few, wow. few West Wing connections. Um, cool. But it's been really fun. And then the other, otherwise, I've been, you know, working on Song Exploder stuff still, as always. Um, and... And I've been. And will making, that go on forever? Will Song Exploder go on for the foreseeable future? As far as, as I know, now? as far yeah. as I know, yeah. And you know, there was a, a, a last year. I took the year off after doing yeah. the podcast for five years. I took the year off in terms of hosting, like actually conducting the interviews. I still was produ- I was still producing the show, but um, but I wasn't hosting it. Um, in order to again like have a year like 2013 where I could like plant some new seeds and come up with some new projects. And, uh, and so I have a couple of things that have not come out yet that I've been working on that I, that I worked on last year. But, um, but, uh, one of, and one of the things that I worked on 
I'm still working on, which was the score. The, the next scoring project I had was a video game, which I've never done before. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's been the thing, the, like the one consolation to having to take my foot off the gas for the one name radio and like my music career. I don't think I realized this at the time because I never really allowed for, for the possibility is that the thing that actually is extremely fulfilling to me is getting to try all kinds of different things. Um, one of the reasons why I had to take the year off from Songs Blood was just because I'd been doing it for five years and I wanted to do something different. And one of the reasons why it was fun to try and make a TV show and start Westman Weekly, you know, it was just, there's a part of me that likes that novelty um, of, of having an idea and then, and then just trying to see it through. Um, yeah. and so in some ways, yeah, I, I'm kind of lucky that, that one, the one thing wasn't such a success that I could only do the one, one thing. I don't know. That's the, that's the, um, hindsight view. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to ma- ma- paint it into a better light. Well, that's uh, Yeah. A recent guest, Marie Forleo, who's very big in like the, the, she's got this online business school and she's got this, you know, you know, Oprah talks about her very highly. And she has this thing where she wanted to do a bunch of different things. And she called herself a multi-talented, no, no, a, uh, ah, now I'm butchering it. It was a multi-talented entrepreneur or multi-faceted entrepreneur. She realized she wanted to do all these things and she used to have shame about it. And then she embraced it and she just does all these different things. And what I call it is, uh, I think of myself as a professional dilettante. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, yeah, I, I identify with a lot of the way you, you've approached things. Um, I have three quick questions. You've semi-answered the first one. Um, but the word no means what to you? I think it depends on what the source of the no is and what the shape of it is, because the no's can come in all sorts of packages. Um, when it comes to like me trying to suggest an idea that I really believe to, in to someone and they say no, to me, it feels like it's just like, I just haven't gotten them to understand what I'm actually talking about yet. And, and if I can, can just convince them, then eventually they're going to say yes. There, there's a, it re- reminds me of um, Freaks and Geeks. Uh, actually, going back to Judd Apatow, right? Uh, I can't remember where he said it, but in, in some interview, he might have been with Mark Maron, where he talks about the geeks in Freaks and Geeks, who I identified with very much, um, where, you know, he, was, he said that it's, it's not that they weren't cool. They thought that, or that they didn't think that they were cool. They thought they were awesome. But he wrote them in a way where it's like, they thought they were awesome. They were just waiting for the rest of the world to recognize it. And That's I, really cool. <laughs> and I, I love that. And that's sometimes what a no feels like to me is I'm like, okay, let me try this again. Let me find a different way of phrasing what it is that I'm asking you. Because I'm sure that if, if I can just get you to understand what it is that I am believing in, you will also realize that this is actually a win-win. <laughs> I absolutely see, see the same thing. I, yeah. I love that description of it. Um, okay. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? I think probably as superficial or maybe pitiful as this is, I think maybe I would go back to that 15-year-old version of myself um, who just felt like utterly hopeless in the, in the romance department and just, you know, and, and say like, you know, it's not, it's not going to be darkness forever you know that it like there are other parts of the world that are more open-minded and there are people who are more open-minded and people who are interesting and you know that that like there isn't such a narrow path to uh being accepted in that way yeah 
And I think I realized I just I just flip flopped the way I usually ask them is that's usually my last question and my and my second question is usually do you have a, a go to mantra when everything falls apart? Hmm. Um, the the words that I think of pretty often came from a, a friend of mine from school. I remember he he also is in the music world. And I remember feeling really low about, again, this idea of like my, my place in the music world and the lack of success that I was feeling. And I mentioned something about like, you know, mutual friends of ours and how well they were doing and what was I doing wrong? I think I had asked, I think I was like, what am I doing wrong? Why have I not had more success? Am I fundamentally not recognizing something. I'm too close to it. He was somebody who's, he was somebody whose opinion I really valued. And so I was asking him, can you give me some kind of objective advice as to like what I'm doing wrong? And he just said, it's not a race. And I think about that a lot. And I think, and that's something that I come back to when I feel myself despairing at the idea of how I'm doing or how well I'm doing or not doing um, more aptly because it always ends up feeling like that, that feeling is always tied to some metric of time. Like by now I should be at this point by now I should have done this by now I should have this. And, um, you know, if, if I had, if my life looked like it looked right now and it was 15 years ago, would I feel completely different? You know, because, you know, there's this, this time is built into it. And I guess that's just a element of expectations. Maybe in some way it's about expectations. Yeah. They set you up for a fall. Yeah. I'm, when you said that, I thought, what great advice for a parent, especially in this day and age, it's not a race Hmm. because there are a lot of things where you can look at these markers and you think about when your kid is learning to walk, they're crawling around and their stomach. It's like, and I remember people would say that when our kids were really young, they would say, you know, they're going to, they're going to walk eventually. Like you don't worry about it. You know, they're going to, they're going to, you're going to keep going. And obviously uh, that's with respect to someone who has a disability, but in the majority of cases, they're going to walk and you get into, was it at nine months? Was it 11 months? Was it at 12 months? You don't remember that now. It doesn't, it's irrelevant. And so why not treat ourselves that way? Mm -hmm. Rishi, you are full of wisdom, man. You're (laughs) more than you, I think more than you realize. Um, I'm really, really appreciative. I, I find it funny that when I first asked you if you would do this, you said, well, I'm not famous enough or something like that. And I was like, what? You're, (laughs) you're, you're so accomplished and so talented. Um, and just a good guy. I, I really, really, really am, am so happy to have had you on here, man. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right, time for my top three takeaways. Truly tough to limit these always, especially when it's a hefty two-part interview. But here we go. Number one, changing a personal characteristic takes constant effort, but it is possible. Trying to be organized is a, is a matter of constant effort. Rishi is referring to his organizational skills, but I think we could all use this in any, quote, bad habit we're trying to quit or new good habit we're trying to build. It's easy to think that one day you wake up and just be organized or be a good cook or not run late. But these seemingly small things really take a conscious choice every day. And like Rishi says, systems are there for a reason. So if you can find a system, use it. Number two, commercial success does not equal artistry. I think this is a battle we all face as artists. We need our industries to validate us professionally before we feel like we are truly artists. When you start to make your art your living, when you can't make a living from your art, you start to question the merits of the art that you're doing. 
Rishi and I both agree that some of the greatest artists of all time weren't recognized for their art until later, in some cases after they died. I don't want you to starve, but I also don't want you trying to make yourself so small or apologizing for your impulses because the external world hasn't validated you yet. You'll end up depriving the world and yourself of the art that represents your unique perspective. Number three, success kind of feels like pushing a boulder up a hill. I would have moments where I, that, that felt like little successes and then long periods that felt like failures or just, just things like, like it just felt like pushing a boulder up the hill all the time. There's a reason that for 10,000 no's, we use the imagery of a mountain and this is exactly it. People glorify success, but sometimes success feels like hauling a huge boulder up Mount Everest. So no matter how small the steps, you got to keep taking them one by one, one foot in front of the other. All right, Rishi, thank you again. I hope all of you are inspired and we'll go check out Song Exploder on Netflix as well as more information about Rishi in our show notes at 10,000knows.com. Share this episode with your friends and followers if you think it can help them in some way. Leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to Instagram. Tag at 10,000knows and at Maddie Dell so we can thank you. If you're not already, follow at 10,000knows on Instagram and connect with us at 10,000knows.com to be added to our mailing list. And don't forget to tune in for our brief little solo Monday Morsels episodes to kick off your week. See you soon.